This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 21 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And I'm also pleased to have the indefatigable Paul Bindig with me again this episode. How's things, mate? Uh, look, great, and I'm just reaching for the thesaurus now to look yeah. up indefatigable. I'm just impressed I could pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just, you know, you, you keep at it. And speaking of keeping at it, Actually, that's a nice segue to um, this episode's guest. So this, this episode's guest is Mr. Jeff Babco. Um, now, I've talked on previous episodes about uh, some of these keyboard players having huge careers and, and being very busy, but I'd argue Jeff takes it to a whole new level again. Um, he's a go-to keyboard player for a range of artists and situations. I mean, just for starters, since 2003, Jeff's been part of the band on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Um, and as you'll hear, and I do mean just for starters in relation to TV work alone, and then add into that extensive session and touring work with everyone from Neil Young, James Taylor, Cheryl Crow, Frank Ocean, Jason Mraz. Oh, and did I mention he's also hosted a keyboard podcast called The Caffeinated Keyboardist. I'm not sure Well Rounded does cover Jeff sufficiently, but I do know you will enjoy this interview. So let's do it. Jeff, really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, we, we usually tend to start off these podcasts with asking, or at least over the last few months, asking our guests how they're keeping busy during what's a really awful time with the pandemic. But having seen what you've been up to the last 20 years, I'm actually thinking you need a damn holiday for your physical health. I, I'm hoping you're actually taking a break. Uh, well, I'm taking a break from traveling, which is obviously, you know, there's no live work happening right now. So really, um, I'm, I'm noticing just a break from the constant air travel, um, in between my in-town things has really, uh, you know, affected my well-being and my family's well-being. Uh, so I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, but I have been keeping busy here in town and at home uh, primarily, and uh, I'm thankful for that too. Uh, uh, but really, the slowdown of travel—if if I don't have to see LAX, which is you know our airport here uh, for another year—that would be absolutely fine with me. Yeah. Um, I'm cool with that. <laughs> yeah, big airport. No, that's excellent. Yeah. And the traffic and, you know, uh, all of that, I, I'm not missing the, the hustle, the rat race aspect of this business or this town. Um, but if you're asking, like, what I have been up to, I'm still working remotely for the television show for Jimmy Kimmel Live uh, from the studio in which I speak to you. I, I deliver uh, audio and video uh, content for that show um, on a daily and weekly basis. We are we have guest hosts all summer. Jimmy's taking the summer off, as was his contract um, negotiated a few months ago, and it turned out great as they were filming in his home, and he had no um, delineation from his home life or his office life there for a while. So, um, but I'm real grateful for that and and remote recording opportunities here in my studio, both my myself and my wife, who's a violinist, who I, who I record as well, and. Um, and now just kind of very trickling back into the stu recording studios 
with very, very strict uh, health and safety yeah. mandates, um, which is cool. Uh, I started my last session actually at a doctor's office getting swabbed and <laughs> things stuck way too far up my nose. Yeah. Uh, but but everybody's healthy and I'm, I'm thankful for the, the, the temperature checks and the, you know, all, all of the the restrictions and the, and the guidelines are really great. Um, everyone's masked and, uh, it's feeling like the people, you know, every, nobody wants to be liable for anybody, uh, contracting COVID and everyone's being very careful about making sure that, uh, us musicians and us employees and workers feel safe. Mm. Just, just on that one, Jeff, the, the recording process, how is it actually uh, impacted by the COVID restrictions? So, you know, obviously there'll be masks, as you mentioned, and a certain amount of social distance required. D does it slow things down? Maybe are you having less people in the studio at once or, you know, or is it, does, is it not really impacted that much in this digital age? That's a great question. Uh, I, I think, you know, if I were doing, um, you know, more live orchestral dates, uh, which I had done a lot of in, in 2019. Yes, those are impacted. And I hear about that from my wife who does that full time. Um, you know, everyone's trying to figure out how that works and nobody's, you know, it's still new. And again, the studios, like the big studios, Paramount, Fox, all these big studios, they don't want the kind of responsibility either. So there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of, you know, no one's sharing music stands and there's distancing appropriate and one-way foot traffic. And uh, that is a little bit awkward for everybody, but but appreciated. And um, and in my world, you know, which is usually small band type things, uh, it's only socially awkward. Um, and we all kind of go outside for mask, socially distant mask breaks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know what is great about it? It's, it's we've, we've noticed... It's cutting back on the snacking, the in-studio snacking. When you have a mask over your mouth, <laughs> A, there's no snacks out like there used to be because they can't do that. And B, uh, you don't keep sticking stupid snacks in your mouth because you have something in front of it. So hopefully I'll, I'll lose some weight uh, as well. Fantastic, fantastic. That's a great silver lining. Yeah, but but it really, as far as you kind of are just doing your job and, and making music and you... You know, when I was first noticing people were trickling back into the studio and seeing the pictures of their masks, I thought, how dumb does this look and how weird is this? But then you forget about it. It's just the norm and we're all wearing masks and, and you're just making music like we always did. And that's what we're focused on anyway. So, uh, but it's nice to get a break from it for two seconds. And, 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 and the other weird thing, as, as one of the guys was mentioning, just not seeing people's faces is weird uh, in, yeah, in a... Course in a line of work where you're reading people's, you know, body language and facial expressions uh, when listening back and when tracking that now you really got to learn what people's eye, uh, their look, the look of their eyes is telling you, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I raise yeah. my left eyebrow, that means uh, change key. Yeah. <laughs> the, the trouble, they don't wear shades. The, <laughs> the trouble is that if we end up having to wear masks on stage, we're all going to look like we're part of a Prince cover band. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, and hopefully the older I get, it'll cover up the, the increasing wrinkles. So there's a silver lining behind <laughs> all. <laughs> Jeff, are you able to share with us a, a potted history of yourself as a, as a young person and your journey into d discovering music and, and, and loving it and, and, and the bridge that, that took you to all the different things that you do now? Sure. Uh, I don't remember a time in my life where I didn't love music. Um, as a listener, uh, I, I my father was a music teacher when I was young, and he had a little uh, upright Wurlitzer piano, acoustic piano, and I would just go in there and bang on that piano. And finally, you know, uh, after a while, they realized I really wasn't going anywhere, so they better get me. My dad didn't want to teach me himself because that would be frustrating, which was wise of him. So I took lessons from a young age, and and then I was learning a lot off the radio at the time. And, uh, and so, uh, then they, my classical teacher, uh, recommended me to a more kind of pop jazz teacher at, at, a, at a, he was the head of the jazz department. He was young, a young head of a jazz department here at the California Institute of the Arts. His name is David Roitstein. He's still there. Uh, and I would, you know, either get dropped off at the uh, college or, or ride my bike up and take, 
lessons up there. And he really, uh, the amazing thing about David, he's an amazing teacher and an amazing guy, amazing piano player. Uh, but he was uh, encouraging, you know, as I was learning songs off the radio and my cassette tapes. <laughs> anyway, uh, he encouraged me to, to kind of go down that road. And so we were working on ear training based on the things I was already doing anyway, learning songs off the radio. He said, well, let's make a chart for that song. Or why don't you show me that lick, write it out. And um, so he made kind of, he, he based his education on what I was kind of headed, you know, where I was headed anyway. Yeah. And, um, and then I was kind of joining, you know, little rock and pop and jazz bands in high school. And then I schlepped off all the way across the country from Southern California to Miami, where, where my teacher David had gone and studied with this great jazz piano teacher, Vince Maggio, down at the University of Miami. I studied with Vince and graduated in four years after uh, doing a lot of jazz gigs down there and, and kind of what they call society gigs. Uh, you know, a lot of cruise ships coming to South Florida, so you'd play for those. And, uh, sure. and uh, you know, the occasional... There was a lot of clubs, though, a lot of opportunities to play jazz and, and R&B with really good good players joined a rock band there. We all came back to LA as soon as I graduated to quote unquote, make it. Uh, and after about three weeks when I realized that wasn't in the cards, I, uh, <laughs> I got a tour pretty quickly and I, I formed my own band and, and then kind of started balancing all of that. Um, from my early twenties, uh, the amazing thing was at some point I realized, I, I was playing with a lot of the people I, I was enjoying 10 years prior, you know, just just a fan of um, I was yeah. suddenly playing with. And it was so surreal. You kind of have to look in the rearview mirror to realize, oh, I didn't dream that I could do this with these people. But you kind of just take what, you know, one foot in front of the other. And then you're you're sitting there and you go, I guess I was doing homework for this all those years. I, I thought I was just enjoying <laughs> music, but I guess I was doing homework. So. I have yeah. to say it's been a pretty cool journey. And so, just just to follow up on that, when you were when you were younger and that first started to happen for you, and you're you're playing with people that, yeah, as you said, you you were a fan of and you admired. Was that initially intimidating or exciting or a bit of both, or um, you you were you were uh, so confident in your competence that it wasn't an issue? So confident in my competence is uh, are, are words that I I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I'm still learning and still adjusting all the time. And I feel like the second I stop learning and, and, and rest on any laurels is the second I, I, I start dying in a way, Fantastic. Uh, not, yeah. not to get morbid, but, uh, uh, so I don't ever, I think I've always felt like a student and I've always yes. felt a little bit like that 12 year old kid that was learning off of the tapes in the living room. Yes. Um, always there's somebody better in the room. There's someone with more experience in the room. There's something that I didn't recognize beforehand, uh, that I could get better at. Um, so I have to have my, I have to be available as a listener as well as a, as a player, but I have to have enough confidence to know I can handle it. So, um, so it is a, it is a kind of precarious balancing act. Uh, and so they, they, the long answer is, is, both a little of both. Um, in, mm-hmm. in every case, I just wanted to make sure I was prepared for the gig. Um, and, and there are nerves involved, but you just prepare enough. So the nerves cannot take over for your preparation. They can't, they, and, and, and again, you look in the rear view mirror or you reflect at the hotel or, or, or whatever on the flight home and you go, wow, that happened, you know, and that's, that's the really cool part. Um, but really doing the gig at the, to the best of your ability, or in my case, has always been the, the first objective. Mm. And one last aside on your formative years, Jeff, I know uh, you mentioned you followed your teacher essentially to Miami, and I believe he had a friend that was a bit of an inspiration to you growing up as well, as he found some success. Is it? Are we talking about Bruce? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Um, that Yes, Bruce Hornsby had been a student of Vince's... Uh, you know, in, in the, I'm going to say late 70s, uh, along with Dave Roydstein, they were students together um, at, at UM. And uh, Bruce actually came to the school to do some of the songs from his Harbor Lights record, which oh, was yeah. new then. It was a great record. And why is that not on my list? See the pressure that you guys have given me. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah, Bruce was doing uh, uh, some of the songs from Harbor Lights with the school orchestra as a benefit for the school music program. 
on my last year of college, and I was playing as the utility synth guy on the gig. Um, and Bruce and I, 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 he was just, he was really kind and really supportive and really cool. And uh, sometime around the same time period, I went to see that Harbor Lights tour with Jimmy Haslip and John Molo, who I'd known, who I'd met as a kid. Uh, John was Bruce's drummer at the time. And uh, John had done sessions for my dad, who had done local jingles um, and hired John. Um, so I knew John. So somehow I ended up on the tour bus on that tour as well, just hanging out. Um, and Bruce always treated me like I belonged in the hang, which is like as a young mm -hmm. musician, the coolest part. You can practice all day long and you can learn all the material. But if you can make the hang and be accepted, that really, at least for me, made me feel like I belonged somewhere and made me kind of want to follow that path because the hang was the most fun part. You know, that's the payoff. Uh, and he was always really cool about that. And I didn't stay in close touch for those first. I think I was probably too intimidated. I did. Uh, Molo invited me to see them perform at the Tonight Show uh, when Jay Leno was hosting. And uh, I will admit this on international podcasting. Uh, I, I he said, "Oh, come down and say he's a real loose guy. Come down and say hi." Well, I'm I'm just in the audience at a television show. I don't really know how to come down and say hi. Like the ushers are telling you very specifically, "Don't go that direction. You go away into the exit." So somehow I went running after their transportation. It might have been a, a limo <laughs> or something. Yelling, "Bruce, Bruce!" Uh, tripping over a speed bump and fall actually falling on my face. So. At, <laughs> We uh, we do, but we now we are very close. Uh, we were actually just in communication yesterday, Bruce and myself, and and um, he actually really kindly gave me a play-by-play -play review of my last. It was kind, by the way. It was nice. Uh, my last record. Just he'd really listened to it, and um, we have mutual friends that are in his band, and uh, and I just love his last record too. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, he's forever a hero, you know, in 86, 87, when, when the first Bruce Hornsby and the range record came out and I was in high school, we didn't have a lot of piano heroes, uh, definitely, no. especially not ones that were playing Leon Russell meets Keith Jarrett solos yeah. on FM radio. I mean, it was nuts. And to see a guy playing kind of jazz piano solos on Saturday night live yeah. was, was nuts. So um, I did go see that band open up for John Fogarty at the Universal Amphitheater on that first tour, and uh, it was really cool to have a hero like that oh, as absolutely. a young piano player. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we will talk more, too, about your solo albums. Um, and, and so it's great that, yeah, Bruce gave you a blow-by-blow -blow, um, breakdown. Um, I, so I, I, I wasn't just being polite to Jeff at the start of the show when I said you're busy, because we're, in preparing for this show, we actually struggled of how to cover your career. And so I've decided to, to break it down into three distinct areas, which is obviously your non-TV performance work, so your touring work, so to speak, your recording work, and then your TV work. So if you don't mind, I'll start off with the, the touring stuff first. Um, how fun. So... Uh, Maybe if we start off covering how you scored that initial, uh, I suppose you could argue, big gig with Julio Iglesias and how that set you up for a fairly constant career to date in touring. Wow, uh, you did your research. That You've gone into the dark web and found my history with Julio. Uh, yeah, I, you know, that tour was really weird. Uh, it, the tour wasn't weird. The tour was amazing. Um, in South Florida when I was in college, I had ended up, uh, the, the one guy that kind of believed in me early on in college was a guitar player that was only a year or two older than I, and um, he was a South Florida native. Dan Warner was his name, and uh, unfortunately, we lost him last year, uh, but he really believed in me, and he was one of these guys in college that was kind of fully formed already. You know, you could already hear how he played. He wasn't he was and more of a commercial player than than just a jazz player. He really played like a studio musician already. And I remember hearing that and having grown up in L.A. and hearing that kind of music kind of, you know, in the air here. I recognized his talent and his gift. And, and he believed in me. And, and he got me a lot of gigs there in South Florida. And one of them was with a cover band uh, in Fort Lauderdale where we played kind of all those early 80s. I don't know what you call it down under but uh aor music kind of oh, the yeah. al Jarreau, uh you know george benson early 80s turn your love around kind of music and i grew up listening to that music and and so it was a great fit and and we played every tuesday at, at this club called o'hara's in fort lauderdale florida 
And what's odd is, uh, you know, I moved, as I said, uh, right out of college. I got it. We got in the moving van uh, and went right back to L.A. And uh, one by one, all of the guys from that cover band in Fort Lauderdale ended up in Julio Iglesias's band. He had decided Julio had decided he wanted a younger band. Um, and these were all the kind of he- top heavy hitter young guys from Miami area. And one by one, they got the gig and they were looking for a keyboard player. And he said, I want an all Miami band. I don't want any ringers. And of course, they they tried, I guess, some Miami guys and they didn't work out. And and my my friends, God bless them, said, he said, uh, Jeff is probably your guy. And he's I don't want any L.A. ringers, you know, and they said, well, you know, we're going to be in Vegas. Why don't you have him meet us in Vegas and, and try out? And uh, and so this was two or three months out of college. I'm here. I'm realizing I'm not going to make it with my band or that I, I dropped out of the band. I was kind of just p- p- pasting up flyers for my jazz band here and trying to get club gigs and trying to get sessions and just hustling as you do. And uh, I went to Vegas and I auditioned and and um, funny, funny story, at least to me, I had had just gotten a regular Friday night gig in Beverly Hills playing for a neurotic uh, female singer and uh, and she she had rehearsals and she had a book and I was going to be the piano player and we were going to have a, a gig every Friday night in Beverly Hills and sure enough I'm in Vegas and it's Tuesday, it's Wednesday, it's Thursday it's Friday and Julio hasn't shown up to the audition and they say you have to stay Julio he hasn't heard you yet and I think you've got the gig I said well I, I have this gig in Beverly Hills I got to got to fly back by, you know, I got to be, that's the only gig I have. And they said, well, if you don't stay, you lose the gig. And, and, and I tried to call and, uh, cover the gig. And, and, uh, I called the singer. I said, I got your gig covered. No problem. I sent the guy all the way. And she just started weeping. She started <laughs> bawling on the, I'm in a pay phone at the MGM grand. And she's, she's, uh, she's just sobbing. And I, and then I said, you know what? I can't do that to you. I, I, I'll see you there tonight. And I got on a plane and, and I, uh, and I got a call the next, I thought I'd lost the gig mm-hmm. with Julio. And I, the next morning they called and said, you got the gig anyway. And I flew out to, um, to the Catskills, uh, North of New York city and, and began, began with Julio, I think two days later. Um, and it was being prepared. It was having known all those guys in college, having been prepared on that gig. And, uh, and you know, not knowing any better, <laughs> I guess. And, uh, and, and I stuck to my guns thinking, well, I've only got one sure shot as the gig I, I have at home. Uh, I got to stay loyal. I can't let that person down. And, and it was a struggle. Yeah. I was as stressed as I had ever been, but, uh, I stayed with Julio on and off for, for about three years. Yeah. And then sort of, you know, went on to some other, you know, small time things like Simon Phillips and Robin Ford and Larry Carlton and, uh, Toto and and so on. So I mean, across all those amazing and Cheryl Crow live as well. So what what have been the highlights? Just purely on the live work, what are the highlights that, that have stood out for you over uh, over that time? You know, every name you mentioned, uh, I I had such such positive experiences with. You know, I I grew up when I first heard Larry Carlton, for instance. On on, I think I first noticed. Larry Carlton was Larry Carlton on the Nightfly, you know, the Donald Fagan record. Oh, yep. Every solo was so iconic and so such a personality on that record. That guitar was almost like like the second voice on the record, I thought. Mm-hmm. And it was so. And then I realized, you know, I had been listening to Larry on the Crusaders Southern Comfort record, which was my dad's one of his favorite records since I was, you know, three. So his his sound was very familiar to him. So when I became you know, uh, when I got to collaborate with Larry and, and be in his band and play on his records, that was pretty surreal and really cool. Um, also with Robin Ford, you know, having been a big fan of the Tom Tom Scott and the LA Express records, uh, Robin's playing, I thought, I, what I liked about all those guys was there was, it, you know, coming from the radio and, and rock and pop and R&B, their sound really was a bridge of jazz language with rock and mm. and r&b you know it, it made sense to me hearing larry carlton's last night record live from the big potato felt like so what played by guys that understand contemporary music and yeah. contemporary sounds and played by guys that are in the now and i love that um that made sense to me that that spoke to me so those guys and and i mean 
Toto was just th- those are the tapes I was I was studying when I was a kid in my yeah. you know um, and so Toto four I I basically David Page taught me how to play mm. piano on pop records um, and and I always thought David had the greatest feel digging into that piano uh, uh, and his his Moog bass playing and his Rhodes playing it just yeah. was that is the template for how to play I thought commercial music. Um, so when David decided he wasn't going to go on the tour and Simon had, had and, and Luke at that point had recommended me to be the guy, it was really weird uh, going over to Paige's studio and he's showing me, you know, how he plays White Sister and <laughs> the breakdown and, he, and, and how he, oh, you know, when you play the intro the whole line, you got to sit back, all that stuff. And, and, and it, I have to say, standing there in that moment um, and, and then... At that point, you know, Kimball, Bobby Kimball was in the band uh, again. He'd, he'd, he'd been back in the band. And there was a point, you know, David sang Africa live. And there was a point Bobby didn't sing. I was supposed to sing Africa. So there was a point <laughs> in rehearsal where I sang Africa. I was like, I'm the new, there's no, uh, thankfully, <laughs> it didn't get past the rehearsal uh, point. But uh, I did sing it at rehearsal. And uh, uh, yeah, that was, that tour was really like fantasy camp come to life um i still really cherish uh, i was asked to do more tours and and because i was in television at that point i couldn't but um i will never forget that that was uh you know standing there i had guys in in i remember a guy in uh in east germany at the time i guess it was east germany still no it was just germany okay former just germany uh uh a guy really standing in front of me. I think he was waiting to see Paige, you know, yeah. as they do, and and just with his arms folded, shaking his head at me every yeah. time I'd play a Paige thing, shaking his head and pouting, and he'd look at his friend, and every time I'd play something, he'd talk to his friend. I could just tell he was saying, you know, this sucks. This guy's no, but I didn't come to see this, and his friend was getting bored with it. I could see the whole, you know, because you only <laughs> focus on the guy that doesn't like you ever at a show. So, um. And then finally, before the encore, we went off stage and everyone's pumped up. And I told Luke, I said, you know, I, I, I use more colorful language, but I, I said, this jerk, he won't stop. He just stands in front. If he doesn't lie, I don't know why he insists on standing in front of me to, to express how much he doesn't like me. He can stand anywhere. But and he said, which guy, which guy? And, and I'll tell you, he went back on stage after that encore and unleashed as only a <laughs> Steve Lukather can a, a litany. I don't, I hope, I don't know that this guy could speak English, but, uh, I think whatever was said, the tone might've spoken volumes. <laughs> um, they were really surreal, special moments and playing those songs with the band, yeah. Mike Picaro, God, I love him so much. I loved him. And yeah. he was such a special guy and being in that family, uh, you know, uh, it's a family that I, I never left. I've, I've, I've never left. They're, they are really special to me. Um, Paige is really special to me. Um, they, they mean the world to me, those guys. That was a, a, a real, that was a real special moment for me. And it's funny, I was going to actually ask you how you found it replacing David Paige because I saw Toto's tour last year when David was unwell and felt sorry for the brilliant guy that was covering his role last year. And so, yeah, I wondered if you'd cop some flack and you obviously did here and there. Yeah. Most of the Toto fans are, are real cool. Um, yeah. but as that was, especially since that was Dave, the first one he missed, I think, and, and I came in, in the middle of it, like they had a break in a European tour and then I'm on the second yeah. half, I think. And this is early in days of blogs and things. So they probably thought Dave was going to be there. That's and, right. and I have to say, that's the only guy I remember being a jerk. Uh, everyone was real cool. I tried to bring a different thing to it, a different, you know, a, a kind of fire. I tried to light Simon up. We, we had been working together for a while and we were very close. So I, I would play the gig differently if I did it now, mm. but I, I, I just tried to be the exciting, you know, slightly younger option and get the guys excited. And, That's right. And that seemed to work out pretty well. Yeah, it's, it's it's true. You say to you, you you play to an audience of a good number of people, and you you focus on the one guy who's standing there with his uh, with a look like thunder and his arms folded, and <laughs> instead of oh, all the people who are loving couldn't it, couldn't take my eyes off that. It's just like the negative comments on YouTube or anything. All we're gonna see is the one the one guy that doesn't like us, not the you know however yeah. many that do. Yeah, so true, so true. You mentioned before um, your, your your TV work that was that was going on in between uh, that has been going on in between all the touring work. 
And yeah, you've managed a couple of decades of TV work with people like Martin Short and Jimmy Kimmel, to name just a couple. What's what's the uniqueness about the approach to TV work versus live music? And what gets you excited about doing it after all these years? Oh, man, it goes through waves like anything. Um, Really, these days, you know, uh, I'm at an age where the excitement comes from uh, just the steadiness of it, the dependability (laughs) of it. Um, When I started working in television uh, back in 99, it was the Martin Short Show, which is a short-lived syndicated television show. I was on the Robin Ford tour. I had I had actually gotten I, it was a long grueling European tour with Robin and so it'll burn you out you know it just you know a lot of one nighters and playing hard and festivals and and I was pretty exhausted and and came back and and uh, that's a lot of blues by the way a lot of blues to play <laughs> so after a lot of blues maybe you get the blues but uh, I I uh, I came back and my buddy had gotten a television show this Martin Short show and I was. Like, oh, who's playing? You know, you always want to know who's on it. And I didn't know the keyboard, one of the keyboard players' names. I don't know that guy. I did know the other one. And oddly enough, I got home and I got called to audition for that show. And I, and I was so green, as we say. I, I, I said, oh, no, that show's got guys on it. <laughs> you don't say that. Uh, and they said, oh, well, one of the guys is, is like, you know, no longer with us. I said, hmm. So, uh, so. You know, back then when I started uh, in 99, and especially when I started uh, the Kimmel show in 03, people would say, gosh, how can you do that day in, day out? Doesn't it get boring? A lot of our heroes touring, guys we we know of and, you know, name musicians saying, gosh, don't you burn out? Isn't that a drag? You can't tour with this and that. And I would say, you know, I don't, I, I kind of enjoy coming into work, seeing the same security guy or gal when I come in, mm. seeing musicians that I love. Uh, it changes from day to day. Every day of, of a daily talk show has different a different set of demands, and, and I laugh at every day. And, and at Kimmel, uh, I laugh every day. We're friends, the band, so there isn't a day where I don't smile, and that's a pretty cool way to make a living. Um, and thankfully, in this case, you know they've they've let me take time off to tour with James Taylor and tour with with Cheryl and and um, so I've have gotten to sneak out and 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 you know do the music thing and 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 play gigs every night and get to you know experience a live audience and great bands. Uh, so I feel like I've been really fortunate to experience something that's steady. Uh, and that can keep me home if I want to, which is great because I have a family. I don't really, mm-hmm. I, I'd rather not have to live on the road, but I can, I can dip my toe in and, and enjoy that experience um, from time to time, which has been pretty awesome. Yes, that's combining the best of both worlds in, in many aspects. Indeed. And uh, look, on that subject, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, if it's okay, about the work you've done recently on steve martin and martin short's really uh, recent show which is and i'm going to say this for for the benefit of our listeners it's called an evening you'll forget for the rest of your life and you can watch it on netflix and as an aside can i heartily recommend that anyone does if you're a fan of steve martin and or martin short it is hilarious very very funny very good show and jeff you obviously play quite a prominent role in the show and to, to the point where i'd say you're you're almost acting Yes. As, as well as being a musician. And I'm curious about, um, well, there's a couple of things I'm curious about. The first one is the, 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 the overt acting that's going on and actually being involved in a couple of the gags and a couple of the setups that they do. Is that something that's come to you based on your time on, on TV shows such as Martin Short and Jimmy Kimmel, or is it just something that uh, happened? Or you know, how, how was that experience for you of doing that as well? The, shooting the special was pretty nerve wracking. I'll be honest. Lauren Michaels from Saturday Night Live was the was one of the producers, and he was there. And uh, you know, I, I don't have any training in acting. Uh, I'm a horrible actor, really. Um, whenever I whenever I was ha- asked to act on the Martin Short show, uh, you know, he would laugh at me. It was so bad. Um, so I think, but but playing a version of myself is something different and something mm-hmm. fun. You know, I kind of just slip in. That character that kind of 
you know, if we want to call it a character in that show, is a version of a musician that I know for sure, a version of me even, or, but a guy that's yep. kind of, he's a little dim. Um, he doesn't really get, like, in my, the way I see it is that guy thinks, um, that version of me thinks that actually the role of the piano player is very, is interesting to people. You know, as, <laughs> as as I yammer on on your podcast about it, but I like I think he thinks he's more interesting than he than he is to most people. You know, he he's so he's waiting for his moment, and and also, and I know this guy, and I know a lot of versions of this guy. He thinks that people might have come to to the show to see him. And <laughs> there's not a soul at that show that is interested in this this guy, but he you know he's on stage, so he's going to have his moment, and uh, and I I love and I change. Um, I try to change my my kind of little monologue every night and just play a version of a musician that's really got some. He's been waiting all night to say his stuff, and he doesn't have anything interesting to say. We <laughs> we we've found like things that work, and sometimes Marty will help, and and Steve occasionally too with with things that don't work. Like sometimes he says, you know, he'll say. That they actually liked you tonight. I said, I know, I know. They they actually liked. They felt bad when I cut you off. You know, the, one of the things I I'm supposed to talk and he's supposed to interrupt because it's so boring. He falls asleep, <laughs> and um, and so boy, they 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 turned on me because they were interested. I know I don't mean to make it interesting, but I kind of don't know what I'm going to say. I kind of have an idea, and then some. Sometimes he's like, oh, if you make a list, like here's the three most things. They actually want you to get to number three. You can't do that. They you they they get mad when I so. It's a specific guy. Um, mm. he, you want to feel a little bit bad for him, but you also don't want him to talk too much. He he uh, he, he needs yes. to stay in the background. Um, and I kind of have a soft spot for that guy. You know, we we all know these musicians that are a little precious, mm. uh, um, but really not. No one's there to see this guy. Um, <laughs> so so I like that character. I like that guy. Uh, um, you know, often I even play that guy in the car ride on the way back to the hotel. I'll say, you know, I'm I'm ready for my solo spot. I've got a song prepared, and and Marty will always say, No, Jeffrey, no, we we don't need your song. Oh, okay, I'm stuck. Um, so I'm kind of that guy, and 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 Steve and Marty make it make make me very comfortable. They're very uh, they're very forgiving, and they're very also very happy to make notes and and. Also, to happy to take notes. If I notice, you know, because they're in their own element every night, I usually get to kind of see how the audience is re reacting from night to night. Whereas they're actually having to perform, I'm kind of sitting on a bench with the best seat in the house. And yeah. I can say, you know, that I don't know if that didn't play because this or that. And it might be a regional thing. Uh, it might just be the energy, it might be a news story that's faded, you know, whatever it is. I, I really get to be kind of a, a a nice little third eye, you know, in the situation. So that's really fun for me. And and I have to also say, you know, in high school, I was such a fan of comedy and such a fan of mm. Three Amigos. We were, you know, it's when you had to rent things and not uh, stream them. And uh, I rented, my friends and I rented Three Amigos, I think, every other week. So, <laughs> uh, so I was very familiar and, and loved those guys and loved Saturday Night Live and Marty's year on, on SNL mm. and... and and Steve's movies, um, Man with Two Brains, and All of Me, and and The Jerk, and this was stuff that really, and 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 I think the comedy uh, shares a lot with music, you know, timing and and yeah. surprise and uh, and and relatability. So SCTV for us as musicians always relates because it's kind of musician humor in a way. Um, so. That's a that that's kind of how I I fell into that and I just have to but it is it's scary you know those are those are the two icons and mm. um it's a it's a precarious <laughs> seat and, to be and Jeff do you think their generosity towards you and and it sounds like more generally is because they don't really have anything else to prove now they're such masters of their craft they don't they don't have to stress about the small things anymore wow that's a great question and I wish it were true they 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 I, well. They, worry is a strong word, but they are very concerned with the minutia of every show, and they pick apart. You'd think this would be their victory lap, right? Yeah, that yeah. they could coast, but it is most certainly not. Those guys before the show, uh, usually the first thing when Steve wakes up is he has an idea for tomorrow night's show or tonight's show. Uh, Marty is the most prepared, both of them really, the most prepared performers I've ever met. Mm. I've really 
taken a lot of inspiration from their preparation and their their commitment to excellence, even at this stage in the game for each of them. Um, and I think their generosity comes from a knowing that I understand where they're coming from, hopefully, and and get what the baseline is of um, of where we're at in the show, and and they expect that I'll be able to handle, you know, to carry my weight and, um, and yeah, so, so, but boy, I can't stress enough how seriously they take it, even at this, which is so cool. Which is what I suppose any true master of their craft does. They don't just sit back because once you start sitting back, you're no longer really a master. Yeah. I think they would give up before they, they turn in a, a, a substandard, you know, product. Exactly. Um, and obviously, um, talking about your career to date, Jeff, you, you've obviously spent lots of years with just your feet up doing nothing. So in, I assume in all that spare time, that's when you've recorded your four solo albums <laughs> and played on a huge number of other albums, which I'll get onto in a sec as well. Um, but solo work first. Do you um, tend to work material up over time with each album or you, you're more of a jump into an intensive writing period and, and recording session? Wow, uh, great question again. Um, each album has been different. Um, my first album, I was such a kid, uh, I was just trying to, I think, prove something or or make a statement. So really, so I could get gigs. I don't think I should have made an album then. But what else do? You, what else? What did I? I didn't know any better. I I, I did what I thought you do, um, and it's fine. Uh, and I, I I started a long partnership with my friend Mike Elizondo, who became a, an amazing producer, uh, pop uh, producer and and writer, and and is just an incredible instrumentalist. Uh, and and we've been close since high school, so fun to have that uh, experience uh, on the first record. But I was just writing jazz songs, thinking maybe my jazz group can get gigs, mm. <laughs> and uh, and maybe get on the radio or something. Uh, and then, then as the next one, the, the next album uh, was mostly just things at my at my friend Tos Panos, who's a drummer, uh, at his house, his home studio, and that was us just messing around really, and and putting. He had a new digital recorder device, you know, at the time, this is like mid late nineties, um, and we were basically just playing for that device and seeing how it sounded back, and it became an album, mm. um, and then. Uh, Really, the la well, then I made an album called Crux, yeah. which was probably the most composed, thought out. I want to make an album before we have it. We have an eight-year-old son. I wanted to have an album before uh, we had our son, so I would, you know, because I wasn't sure if I'd ever have time to do that <laughs> again. And uh, and I had collaborators in mind, and Tim LaFave, great bass player, had just moved to town, and I wanted. To make music with him and Matt Chamberlain, great drummer, and and Mark Isham, and uh, I'm real proud of that album because I actually did work really hard at writing stuff that I thought, you know, it was it was uh, definitely thought out and composed. And and the last album that I did called El Musico uh, was really not supposed to be an album. It was just me in my studio messing around with gear and, and also uh, a bunch of songs that I had I'd written for a local gig, a uh, Tuesday night gig here in town at a little bar called ETA. And I, between the two things, uh, I had an album and I thought the music should come out. I, I felt like I liked this music and I thought, why not? It shouldn't just, you know, sit dormant in a disc drive. Yeah. Uh, so so that was so a kind of different version of events for every album. I feel like now... An album will come out uh, when it seems like it's supposed to, almost. Yeah. You know, and there's no record companies banging down anybody's door. And uh, so, if the music kind of sprouts out of the ground and and seems ready, then let's pick it and put it out. Uh, we're working on another album by this kind of collaborative, cooperative group called Band of Other Brothers. Um, we're writing for that album, and I think we're going to be recording it remotely um, with Keith Carlock and Near Felder and. Jeff Coffin from Dave Matthews Band right. and Will Lee, uh, and we're uh, we're kind of moving on that, and and we start kind of recording this month. So Excellent. that's the next batch of stuff. Good stuff, and yeah, all recommended listening, and we'll link to them in the the show notes. But yeah, I've enjoyed the hell out of listening to those. Um, and 
obviously then with your recording work and again I don't know where to start with the amount of albums you've played on so I probably just best to ask you again some highlights for you whether it's I mean at the top of your list there you've got Neil Young which you could spend three episodes on alone I'm sure but um, what are some of your recording highlights for other artists? That Neil Young is a hilarious well hilarious to me that was such a random uh, record uh, Michael Bearden who's a great keyboard player in and of himself um he, we had worked on the Emmys, which is the big television, you know, uh, awards show here in Los Angeles. We had done it together for a few years. Actually, Paige had done it before, of all things. And Paige uh, bowed out, and I came in, and uh, Steve Jordan and Michael were handling the music, and 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 Michael and I became close. And Michael had arranged the orchestra parts for the Neil Young half of the record of this Neil Young record, and. Um, really just didn't want to play the whirly part and conduct. So uh, I think it happened like I got called on a Monday for a Tuesday and it was a Kimmel shoot day. And I thought, oh gosh, do I send my sub to Kimmel or do I plan a Neil Young orchestral <laughs> record? And I did the right. I'm really glad I did it. Neil was so cool. You know, every, everything on that, on that record, he tracked live with the orchestra, wow. which was just phenomenal you know really cool him singing you hear his voice in your headphones you just go wow that's that's neil young that's definitely there he is i see him over there but i can't believe i hear him in my 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 headphones so that that was a good one um yeah so many fun the, the there's a frank ocean first record called channel orange that was um a lot of the records that i've done like are kind of surprises you know as a working musician, you just kind of, they come out of nowhere. That one, Matt Chamberlain said, there's a really cool producer named Malay. He's got a new artist, Frank Ocean. You want to come play? And it was me and Matt and Charlie Hunter were the rhythm section. And Charlie was playing the bass and the guitar parts as he does uh, simultaneously. And, and we played two tracks and, and I think the waiting around of to record on each of those tracks was at least four times the amount we actually tracked the song. <laughs> uh, the songs are like two, three takes. Um, and I didn't realize that would become, you know, a kind of seminal album. You just don't know. Um, right. But they were really cool songs. And I remember as we were tracking them, they, they were letting it, you know, letting us jam. And a lot of that stayed on the record. And um, so that was pretty, pretty great. Uh Geez, what other recordings? Uh, well, I, I do want to take an Aussie angle, and, and you've done two Colin Hay albums at least. So um, we obviously worship Colin and men at work a bit down here. So, I mean, how was that working with Colin? Yeah, gosh, I've done a bunch with Colin, and, and thank you for bringing him up because he's one of the, as as you know, as a national treasure, he's one of the he's one of the greatest humans. I just love him. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah we've been working together on and off for it has to be almost 20 years. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, it's been a, we've, we, I used, I played in his band live and we had, we had some hilarious shared experiences, uh, doing that. And, um, we just get along so well and have such a good time. And every time I go to a studio, it's another song that just seems like it's a classic song. You <laughs> just go, all I got to do is not mess up, mess this up and make it worse. Um, they're already there and it just sounds like Colin and his voice, he opens his mouth and it's that voice and, and he's such a great storyteller yes. and, and, uh, yeah, really my job on those things is to make him happier about the song, uh, than when I got there. If, if I can make him light up with some little color that I add, then I'm happy, but really just yeah. not get in the way of the song. Cause he's so good. He's just, yeah. God, he's special. He is. Um, no, and thank you for that that anecdote. And I, I need to add for our listeners, I've skipped over a bunch of other artists. Jeff's pl- uh, played on, like, you know, just little-known people like Don Henley and Lannis Morissette and so on. But we, we could take all day. Yeah, the problem the problem we've got, David, is if we just list verbally the artists that Jeff's played <laughs> with, that would actually take up the That's entire right. time of the podcast. <laughs> oh, you guys. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and all of those, like, really is one of those, like, Don, too, it's, it's similar to the Neil Young, like, you put on the headphones and you hear Don Henley's voice yeah. in, your, in your ears and you're just, like, chills talking about it even. It's so surreal to hear this. It's those real special voices. Colin's one of them too. Yeah. Just this voice comes in, you go, that's the guy. Like, and I'm going to make music with that person. And uh, it's pretty, 
it's it's a special experience. I don't I don't take a second of those for granted when I'm when I'm cutting those records or just recounting the experience. It's 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 pretty it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Jeff, the question we ask all of our guests is about their gear. And if, if you don't mind sharing, uh, can you let us know what are some of the essential pieces of keyboard gear that, that would be your go-to bits of equipment that you use? Uh, well, um, it's always changing, right? That's the problem with us keyboard players. We can't, you know, they put something cool out. And it's like, I will say I, I can I can de I can go backwards, work backwards and say I'm not really a soft synth guy. Um, uh, you know, because I always, and maybe just because I'm lazy, but I, I really think that most producers and film TV composers and, and songwriters have all of the soft synths and they kind of master it in their own laptops and home computers. And, and they can all kind of do that and manipulate it at home. And, and, and so when they come over here to my studio to work or when I send them tracks, you know, I've always got my B3 and Leslie mic'd up. I've got, uh, kind of my favorite recording Fender Rhodes here set up with my pedal boards and and um, and then just a bunch of workhorses here in the studio I, I'm looking now I'm, I'm here now so I've got I I love the sequential circuits stuff uh, so yeah. I use the profit six a lot um, I use the ob6 quite a bit I really like their their new pro 3 is just oh, yeah. uh, which came out this year is just a really it's really one of those synths that you turn on and it, it makes you want to make music. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, it inspires you. And I think those are the cool, that's another great thing about hardware synths and, and keyboards, like, because it's something you can, it's, it's a, you know, you can touch, you can touch it. It's a tangible item and all the knobs are right. It, it coaxes, mm. I feel it coaxes music out of me, you know? Um, so I love that. Uh, I, I love, I love twiddling the knobs in real time. So, so those synths are great. I'm a Korg artist, so I, I, I wouldn't be able to do the Kimmel show without my Kronos, to be honest. Yep. Um, the Kronos is such a user-friendly workhorse, mm -hmm. and um, the touchscreen is just so great. Like, if I have to score a live bit, comedy bit, I can really get any instrument, any combination of instruments with in the combination mode on the on the on the yeah. chronos so easily and i could mix it on the fly and it just makes it really easy it's really like you know so many guys depend on main stage and stuff for me that chronos a it's not going to crash yeah. and b i can really get it, it just goes it's just so great for a gig like that and i always have one set up at my studio as well because it's all of the patches are so use usable and and uh it's such an amazing synth. And I actually just got their Wave State as well, which oh, yeah. came out this year. And that's another one that's really, you know, it's, first of all, it weighs like, I don't, I don't remember if you guys are metric or pounds, but it weighs nothing. Yeah. It weighs like, the, like, like, a, like you know, no pounds. I don't know how it weighs so little. And it's got under the dash, you know, under the, under the hood, as we say, uh, it's got so much going on. It's yeah. got endless possibilities. It's a, it's an amazing little piece of gear with you know the that that wave station technology is just bonkers like you can just really unpeel that that thing and and discover all kinds of layers and 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 yeah it's timbres and beats and mm. it's so cool yeah so i don't know if that's a if that's an answer but and then you know clavinet and my Wurlitzer and all the old standbys yeah, mm. yeah mm. great stuff um and also, I'm hoping you can give us a bit of a advice, Jeff, because I, I'd argue you may have been the world's first um, keyboard player to do a podcast, and and obviously we're doing something uh, in the the same sort of vein. So I, I know it's been a few years since you've done the podcast, but what did you learn from doing that? And and for our listeners, it is still able to be uh, listened to and is well worth a listen. Uh, it's a roundtable discussion. But what what did you learn from that, Jeff? And um, do you miss it? Wow, it's nice of you to ask about that. Yeah, I have a really, really, I have fond memories of the podcast. And if it, as you guys know, it's it's time consuming. You know, it to to and and the thing about it being a roundtable, you know, it was four of us for every episode, and I was just trying to mix people's dialogue so make sure that the listener who can't see lips moving could yeah. could hear who was who, and I was panning things, and I was trying to get it so people. I, I learned so much from that program, you know, um, and I loved trying to pit 
different people because we're all keyboard players, but there's so many versions of, you know, quote unquote keyboard player. And I loved hearing guys react to other other players that just didn't have, you know, just hearing perspectives kind of collide and be shared uh, was, and hearing stories be told that that you only really tell when you're around other musicians. That's that's so fun. So I, I really miss it, but it was so much work and I, I just, I wish I could do it. I almost relaunched it a couple years ago and then uh, I didn't, but you never know. Um, you guys have taken over the reins, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's, I'm good. <laughs> no, I, I Gee, feel, that was very generous. Yeah, that was, was very, very generous. generous. <laughs> um, but no, it is, it, it's well worth it. It's amazing people that you, you talk to and you're right, particularly when you're trying four-way, that's a massive undertaking. Um, so I can understand that. Even just scheduling was yes. was uh, was nuts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so now we have another. I guess I'll call it the standard question. But when we love to ask people who've done a significant amount of touring work, can you share with us a memorable train wreck where maybe something rather unexpected has happened on stage, and and you've you've had you had to navigate your way through it? Oh, where do you begin? Uh, <laughs> I remember, uh, well, not mine. So, so I was on tour uh, in '96 in the summer. I'd taken a break from Julio because I want. I, I, there was a younger artist that was really cool. He'd put an album out that kind of sounded like Seal meets Lenny Kravitz if Trevor Horn produced them. You know, um, <laughs> well, Trevor Horn did produce Seal, but but it was a cool. And I thought, oh yeah, this is the kind of music I actually listened to. No offense to Julio, but you know that was for a different generation of listeners yeah. and. This was a fun band, and I, and I toured with him. And I remember the last; it didn't work out, and I could tell it was kind of a sinking ship because just mismanaged and record. It just wasn't gonna fly, you know. It was one of those artists, good intentions and almost, you know, but it wasn't gonna take off. And and so I had left, but I had one one more gig to do. And that night, I and and I had a big solo, kind of like a a horrible discount Kenny Kirkland with Sting solo, you know, like, <laughs> like that was my mom, my 16 bars to print, to play, to play pretend, you know? And I remember, um, uh, uh that, that the keyboard, you know, it was an apex keyboard stand in it. And it was a big Kurzweil PC 88 that, that by bar two was all, that was a heavy synth, you yeah. know? And, and it was, it had fallen off of the stand. The whole stand had collapsed, bar two of my solo, and I, I did finish the solo on, uh, on my feet. Um, and that same thing happened, which is like on the internet now, this, uh, this with Mark Juliana, you know, and, and it's kind of gone viral, but the, the synth fell, uh, the stand collapsed when I was playing uh, a gig here in town. And, and um, I didn't even think twice about it then because that is all improvised music and the yeah. synth falling was just part of the madness of the gig so uh so really it was oh and it was the last songs it was like whatever there was a horrible stand and and um so that's never fun but uh that one didn't bother me as much it just didn't, until it just kept getting sent to me via youtube <laughs> like a, a thousand times um uh and and the other one that i remember being really funny is when i was a, a backup keyboard player for george duke the great george duke yeah. um it would he had he was always into technology and he always had a great MIDI a, a keyboard tech and they were always trying to perfect his wireless MIDI situation because he oh, liked yeah. to go out into the studio I mean sorry out of the into the house you know into the audience and play his solos out in the audience and people loved it you know but he he don't want it you can't have a cable going on so he had wireless MIDI and I'm talking every gig that thing stuck every <laughs> gig he'd go out to the audience and go wait a little <laughs> and then you see the keyboard tech you know running on it was so spinal tap and i remember feeling so bad for george because you'd run it at a rehearsal and it would go great and said, let's see how far you back and it never i i don't remember one gig where it didn't stick so that's always what i remember even george duke you know couldn't couldn't got you know god rest his soul couldn't couldn't overcome uh technical fails that's amazing <laughs> i love that um, and then the final question that you've been stressing about, Jeff, the Desert Island Discs. So five albums you couldn't live without. Yeah, so I've got 38. Cool. No, I, I, I do, but uh, 
Gosh, okay, well, I, I, I made a list. Now, I see 11 on this list, but I, I numbered five for <laughs> because that was the, the job, the task at hand. But I have, I'm a huge Todd Rundgren fan, and, and yeah. Utopia's album POV, which is not an album that I think a lot of people, you know, most of the Utopia fans love like raw and their old mm. the old albums and but i love the kind of pop version with chasm sultan and, and pov i just realize when you ask and you know these desert island discs always change right as we yeah, yeah. as we but but that album i always go back to every song in that album speaks to me the wildlife and and stand for something and play the game and secret society like uh mimi gets mad every song in it um i just love yeah. uh and Roger Powell was such a cool synthesizer player too, but just Todd and Chasm and, and, and the writing, I love the songs on that record. So that record, I always come back to. So I, I don't think I'd be able to, to be on an Island with, without it. Yeah. I, I always find I end up listening to it on a plane or in a car or, you know, it just feels good to me. Um, right. Cool. Wayne shorter, speak no evil on the other end of the spectrum. Um, yeah. I, I love Wayne's writing on that record. I remember buying that record. I remember the day I bought it. I remember Freddie Hubbard's solos just being perfect. I remember Herbie Hancock's comping and and mm. Elvin. Everything about it. I, I don't. I think it's a flawless jazz record. So I would include that. Um, Jan Hammer's Oh Yeah record for uh, all us keyboard oh, geeks. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that record. I did a kind of tribute to that record last year with a band here with Chad Wackerman and Jimmy Johnson and Charlie Bisharat and um, made me appreciate it even more. Boy, the writing on that and Jan's playing is just, it's just mm -hmm. mind blowing and flawless. And it's so unique. He has that Eastern European kind of harmonic and, and melodic sensibility. And then just, just as far as just his time, his time is just like a clock and just mm -hmm. ferocious in his, his ease of tempos he's just uh, it's i love that album and i love uh the the band on that album too tony smith who's a sweetheart of a guy on drums uh i just love that record um what else do i have here oh thomas dolby golden age of wireless oh, yeah. i put uh i love that album and, and i love the writing on that album it's hard for me to imagine how young he was mm. and how much he'd mastered the technology but the part, uh, and it was hard. It's hard for me to choose between that and the Flat Earth, his second album. But his writing is so mature and 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 harmonically, chordally, so interesting yes. and and kind of um, adult and and inform. You know, it's not simple. It's almost you know you you'd be you could argue that it has almost Steely Dan density and yeah. it's it's hard it's, uh, at times. There's just beautiful uh, writing and and then if you strip that away and just take the technology, what he was achieving technologically is, is is it's it's incredible what he what he did on that first record and the last one on that the first five and then i'll go by the other ones quickly but i had miles miles davis seven steps to head of heaven i'm such a miles fan and i was talking to my wife about it the other day and miles and and brian eno to me kind of signified over the course of their career like how to push beyond mm. what even you understand and uh, as an artist, you know, you, you, you're going on to the next thing before you've even wrapped up the last thing. You, you're fearless of, of, of what's happened and what's to come. And you're just diving, you know, forward into the unknown. And, and that album, although it's traditionally jazz, he's got a new band and half the record with Herbie and, and Tony Williams. But he's got also one of my favorite keyboard players of all time, Victor Feldman, on the rest of the tracks. And um I love the way that record swings, and I love the sound of it, and I love the writing. So, those are the top five. And then I had ABC Lexicon of Love, and oh. Talk Heads Remain in Light, and uh, Herbie's Thrust record, and The Meter's Rejuvenation, and and of course the Nightfly and Asia. So, Royal Scam. I you know those are all on there too, and I, and, and there's probably twenty others, but uh, yeah. that's what I could come up with. If I only had a small briefcase yeah, and right. CD, those would have to get in there. <laughs> no, great calls. Jeff, I, 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 I'm not being, again, polite when I say we could spend five episodes talking, but thank you for taking the time that you have. It's been a, an absolute revelation. And, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing you um, continue what you're doing for, for many, many years to come. Thank you so much. And I, I, I miss being in Australia, and I hope to be back uh, soon. I, I love it there, and I, you guys are 
in a special place and and you're you're doing something special to my heart uh focusing on keyboard players and uh thank you Oh, that was one interview, Paul. What a pleasure it was talking to Jeff. Yeah, and it's it's a, a bit of a worry because I think we say this every episode, but <laughs> just what a what a great guy and so generous with his uh, and so humble, and he's just done so much work and and I, I don't know about you, David, but it was a bit challenging to work out what to ask him because he just has such a huge yeah. canon of work. Um, yeah, I'd like to put Jeff amongst uh, a bunch of our other guests on notice. Um, you, you may be asked back for a second episode down Absolutely. the track. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, that was amazing. Um, uh, and, yeah, I think I think Jeff made a really good point in regards to the Martin Short and um, Steve Martin stuff. You, you, we, even if you're a master of your craft, and, and Jeff would probably be the first to say he's not, even though he obviously is, um, you, you never take your foot off the pedal, and, and that's what makes the difference. So... Yeah, amazing stuff. All right. So the Keyboard Chronicles will be back again in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. Uh, Our website, as always, is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Just to mention again that we've had a bit of a facelift on the website. There's a weekly newsletter that you can sign up for if you'd like to hear some of the, the latest news around keyboards and people making music on them. Uh, it's free, um, and um, yeah, we're getting quite a, a lot of subscriptions to that, which is, is very gratifying. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles, Twitter at the keyboard chr1, uh, good old fashioned email. You'll find us at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. If you'd like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account, obviously not compulsory. Uh, maybe we should make a compulsory poll. How many people would fall for that? We um, definitely need to make it compulsory. Yeah, right. uh, scr- scratch what David just said. It's yeah, actually it's compulsory. compulsory. Stop it, listening now if you're not prepared to sign up for the Patreon. That's right. Um, so, yeah, for the price of a coffee a month, you can help us go from strength to strength, um, and that is at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. Uh, a huge thank you again to Paul for joining me again this episode. It was a lot of fun. It was an absolute pleasure, and thank you again for inviting me to be part of it, David. Um, And most importantly to you, our esteemed listeners, thank you for listening and we hope to see you back here next episode. Mm